Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Let's just say that God were to come to us and He were to say, I'm going to give you whatever you want, one thing that you want for the remainder of the life of Gospel Community Church. What thing would it be? Perhaps it would be a a flawless building, a clean parking lot. Perhaps it would be a a full auditorium or a, a balanced budget or whatever else it might be. I wonder if in that instance, we might think of a number of things that we would desire as a church for ourselves. As I kind of thought about this question, I thought if there was one thing that I could ask God for, for this church, for the remainder of its existence, I think the thing that I would ask for is men who lead the congregation with a heart rich in the gospel. As we look out at churches today, we recognize the lack of those who lead churches well, who lead churches with humility like our passage calls us to, And I think that's the thing I would ask for. For whatever reason right now, God has given us a front row seat for so many different congregations that are struggling. And part of that struggle is this uneasy tension that exists between leadership and the members of the church. The membership somehow learns to distrust its leaders. The leader somehow feels distrusted. And I praise God that I don't think that's the case here. I I think we're in a healthy season. We have a a degree of trust between leadership and and those led. But as I watch these situations, it reminds me of, of, of so many places in the past where there's arguments that rise up about silly little things like carpet color and budgets and whatnot. And and all of a sudden we recognize how topsy turvy this whole church thing can become, right? See, to me, these churches feel a bit like a, a Ouija board. That's an interesting analogy, right? A Ouija board where the membership is saying, you're moving it. And the the leaders are saying, no, you're moving it. And all the while, there's a devil in the midst. See, this morning, we turn to a passage that that shows us what it's like to have um, a harmony between leadership and membership. We want to unpack what that is as we turn to 1 Peter 5. And we recognize that Peter so often through the course of our letter, as we've been reading through this, Peter so often is is turning toward the relationship between the Christian and the world. And now he kind of redirects and turns our attention between uh, Christian to Christian as as leadership, elder uh, deals with and and learns to lead uh, its membership. So here's our big idea this morning. See, grace-filled churches consist of humble people. Grace-filled churches consist of humble people. That's humility in the pulpit and humility in the pew, humility in the elder and humility in the church member. And see, as we go through this, we're going to see this kind of uh, pattern that exists. See, we're going to see first in verses 1 through 4, a call for elders to shepherd. And then in verse 5, we're going to see a call to members to submit. And then in in the second half of verse 5, we're going to see everyone, a call to be humble or a call to humility. It's really a pretty simple outline for us here this morning, yet it's so hard to live. And I wonder if we might tackle this passage this morning a little bit differently, because really there's three people in this room that four verses out of the five speak to. I'm one of them. 
Ryan Filbrin's an elder, and then Brian Spirito, who was up here before, is also an elder. And this passage primarily speaks to leadership of churches, to elders. And so we'll tackle that. And then secondly, we're going to address those who are members here who've committed themselves to Gospel Community Church and talk a little bit about what your responsibilities look like. And then finally, we'll talk, kind of wrapping it all up, attitudes that really help grease the wheels of the church body. So we're going to dig in in chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, where we're going to see first that elders should shepherd. Look with me again at verses 1 through 4. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter is giving us his resume, right? He's telling us exactly what qualifies him to speak this way. And he tells us first that he's an elder. And maybe you're here this morning, you're kind of unfamiliar with this terminology. What is an elder? I'm just going to tell you that an elder and a pastor are the same thing. In fact, in the New Testament, the the, the titles are kind of interchangeable. See, we have three here at Gospel Community, Ryan, Brian, and myself. It's kind of funny because someone told me this week that one of your children came up to my wife this week and said, does Jason own the church Yes, you can laugh at that proposition, right? No, Jason does not own the church. In fact, there are three of us who lead the church, but in no sense do we own the church. In fact, we are under shepherds of Jesus Christ. We are called to care for the body that is entrusted to us. And so Peter describes himself as a fellow elder. He describes himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter had this unique perspective, didn't he? He was one of the last ones, one of the last disciples to be around Jesus before his death until he finally fled at the crowing of the rooster. But he's also a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. If you have read along with us in 1 Peter, you realize that that's a description of all the saints that are reading this book, that he himself is held in common with so many others that are reading this letter. So he's an elder, he's a witness, and he's a partaker. But notice that, that Peter calls elders to shepherd their own flock. In verse 1, he says, to the elders among you. And then in verse 2, he calls again, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Remember, he's writing to this host of churches. We saw that back in chapter 1. He's writing to churches in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. We'll have the geography test later on to see if you guys know where all those things are. Peter's advocating that the elders in the Cappadocia area don't try to shepherd uh, the, the, elder, or the church that is in another area, right? It's worth thinking about for just a minute because so many of us are kind of tapped into other ministries around the country, right? See, as elders here, Ryan and Brian and myself, we are called to shepherd the church of God that's right here in Troy, Ohio, or in Miami County, Ohio. See, our concern for other churches should be weighted accordingly. In an, area of an era of national and international ministry, let's be focused intentionally on those that God has entrusted to us. And likewise, for those of you who are members here, while you might listen to a good sermon from John Piper or from somebody else from some other part of the world, recognize that those men don't know you. They don't know your kids. They don't pray for you. They don't bear the burden of your spiritual life. They don't answer to God for you before the throne of God. They're not called to shepherd you. 
It's worth noting also that Peter's writing of this letter, as he's writing, it doesn't constitute what shepherding is. Notice that's what is bound up in this statement. I exhort the elders among you, as fellow elder, witness, shepherd the flock of God. This writing of this letter is not Peter shepherding. He's shepherding to somebody else somewhere, or he's writing to somebody somebody else somewhere else, someplace far away from where he was. She's shepherding God's church must go beyond merely giving instruction. Uh, you know, take two verses and call me in the morning. See, as we shepherd the flock of God that's entrusted to us, brothers, we, we don't just shepherd them and throw scriptures at them. We pray with them. We listen to them. We hear them. We, we weep with them if necessary. We speak to them. I love what Paul Tripp, he summarizes ministry, and he says that we should love people. We should know people should speak to people, and we should call them to action. Even as we've defined what shepherding is here at Greenville Grace, we've said that shepherding is leading, feeding, knowing, and protecting sheep. And that's what we're called to do. See, if the primary command is to shepherd God's sheep in verse 2, the remainder of verses 2 and 3 show us exactly how we are to do that. He says in, in, chapter, or in verse 2, he says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so Peter gives us these three sets of not buts. He's done this kind of consistently throughout the letter where he says, not this, but that. Not under compulsion, not for shameful gain, not domineering, but willingly, but eagerly, but uh, being examples. And so we're going to start through these three things and kind of help define the shepherding task. And truthfully, I'm going to speak to us three elders this morning, and I invite you to kind of listen in with us so that you might be able to kind of assess the leadership that you are under as well as we hear from the Word of God. See, Peter says in verse 2, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. See, Peter tells us that an elder must not feel obligated to shepherd. Pastor elders serve, uh, they, they should not serve under compulsion. They serve under compulsion when there is some expectation outside of God's calling that forces them to serve. They feel that they really don't have a choice in the matter. They feel guilty or driven to do something they're they're not particularly excited about, but they feel the need to do it. I remember when I served at a a former church, one of the elders spoke to a a fellow pastor of mine, and he said this. He said, no, you're like the gas, and we're like the brakes, which makes for a really interesting team dynamic, right? You do the, all the things that push us forward. We're just here to bog you down. Well, that was an unhealthy understanding. They felt an, a compulsion to be there to slow down the ministry of the church so that this particular pastor didn't go too far ahead, as it were. Sometimes I'll meet with other men and I'll, I'll be kind of feeling out whether they're called to, to serve the church as an elder And I have to be really careful in these conversations because inviting elders can quickly turn into compelling elders to serve in these specific categories. Thus, it's really hard because I might see such great potential, but if the individual isn't called by God, the situation is dead in the water. I'm beating a dead horse. And if I continue to beat this dead horse, I'm really going to get stuck with a a very bad situation down the line. 
I'll have an elder who's serving because he feels he has to serve, not because he wants to serve. See, in the end, it's better to have one called elder who's confident in his calling than to have ten compelled elders. See, what Peter says is that elders are to serve not under compulsion, but willingly, that is, deliberately. We aren't to shepherd like the child who doesn't want to clean his room. We're to shepherd like the dog who wants to obey its master. I just called all of our elders dogs, just so you know. We should be those who seek out opportunity to connect with the members at GCC. We should uh, call them, text them, write letters. We should pray for them, preach to them, speak with them. We should do all of this with this eager expectation that God is going to bless these means to shape them and form them into the likeness of Jesus Christ until the day of his coming. Second, we're not to shepherd for shameful gain. But we're to shepherd eagerly, is what Peter says. Again, Peter starts with this negative, not for shameful gain. Now, just so you know, I'm the only paid staff here, so I'm speaking to me, right? We, we recognize that we cannot shepherd out of shameful gain. If Peter's first warning is not to serve when you don't feel up to it, his second warning is not to serve while you're selfishly motivated, That is, we shouldn't be driven to minister by money or respect or power or authority or any such thing. The pastor elder is not a shepherd for hire. That would seem to be the the description of the hired hand that Jesus gives us in John chapter 10. See, instead, we're to shepherd eagerly. That is, with readiness and joy. See, true pastors, true elders, they're ready to serve the people, uh, not because they're lovely or worthy or good or kind or whatever else, but because Jesus Christ is reflected in the leadership of the church. And as we serve with joy, we carry out the roles that the Spirit has laid upon us. So he says we're to shepherd willingly, shepherd eagerly. And in verse 3, he kind of turns the corner and he says that we are to be exemplary, Right? He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. See, truthfully, it's a plague in the church right now, this issue of domineering leadership. If you don't know the history, in 2006, there was a a book written called uh, The Young, Restless, and Reformed. It was kind of citing this new movement of young pastors that were interested in Reformed theology. They were go-getters. They were planting churches, and there was this kind of new movement that was starting up. It was marked by uh, movements amongst church plants like from Acts 29 or Sojourn Network or other places. And when this movement hit its eight-year mark, the cracks started to show in the foundation. 2014, Mark Driscoll was invited to step down from his post at Mars Hill, and the letter said this, the investigation of formal accusations against Mark Driscoll revealed patterns of persistent sin in the areas of arrogance, a quick temper, and domineering leadership. In 2007, Daniel Montgomery steps out of his pastoral position in Louisville, Kentucky for accusations of his difficult leadership style. In 2019, uh, Steve Timmis, the leader of Acts 29 Europe, uh, it was accused of domineering leadership, and he had to step down. See, we have seen a major disconnect between good, right theology and genuine, true humility. 
The, the theology that should promote in us that, that we should be humble, that idea that God has saved us despite ourselves, didn't actually translate into humble action and leadership. See, there's no way for us to be domineering and for that to be a good thing. Like, imagine leaving this church this morning, if you're a visitor here with us, and saying, hey, I went to this new church in Troy, and I checked it out, and it was really great. The, the pastor there is really domineering. That wouldn't fit, right? That's not a good act, uh, description at all. Yet, so often, we, we tend to put up with this because someone is driven or motivated or whatever else it might be. So we need to have a higher expectation of our leadership. And what Peter says is that rather than being domineering, they should be exemplary. Paul says the same thing to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 4. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but, but set, the believer, or set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Paul says to his recipients in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. See, the leaders that exist amongst us, the elders, the pastors, shepherds that are here amongst us should be setting an example that is worthy of emulation. That doesn't mean that you and I, brothers, shepherds, that we have to live perfectly. Rather, that we have to embrace patterns of confession and repentance, that we have to own our sins when they happen. Someone has said somewhere that a pastor should be the lead repenter in his congregation. We should embrace that. We should seek to live lives that are exemplary, but acknowledge when we've been less than exemplary to those we lead. In verse 4, Peter lays out what the reward is. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Notice Peter refers to Jesus as the chief shepherd. You and I, if we're shepherds, pastors, we're just under shepherds. We're just here kind of managing what God has left us with, and we are to do so faithfully. Excuse me. <clears throat> See, pastor elders are only to be considered under shepherds. The true shepherd will reward his faithful under shepherds at his return. Second, Peter holds out this reward, the unfading crown of glory. It sounds like we get more treasure than you, right? I should stick up my hand and say, no, 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 boo, boo, right? I don't think that's actually what's happening here, though. James says that anyone who endures in the faith will receive the crown of glory. So the same thing that's ascribed to us here in 1 Peter is also ascribed in, in James chapter 1 then I don't think there's any unique reward for us other than that when we get to heaven, brothers, we get the joy of seeing those that we've led enter into God's presence. We get the joy of concluding our work. I think it's unique. It's not better, but it's different. See, Peter also briefly turns his attention to those who are led in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's what he says to you. If you're a church member here at Gospel Community, he's speaking directly to you. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. You're saying, Jason, am I reading this wrong? You're saying it's speaking to us, but it's talking to those who are younger. Well, first of all, probably are younger, but who is Peter addressing here? 
The word simply means, uh, the word younger, it just means new. But when we kind of consider the whole weight of this passage, we see that he addresses the elders first. He addresses this group that we call younger, whatever that means. And then he addresses everyone together. So what we should conclude then is we should conclude that anyone who's not an elder in a church would fall into this category of younger because he's putting everything together, as it were, in the second part of verse 5. We also see this kind of uh, spoken elsewhere in Hebrews 13. Hebrews says this, the author of Hebrews writes, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will give uh, an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so he's speaking to church members, and he's calling you to to be subject, right? That's the call in in verse 5. This isn't the first time in the letter that we've seen this, right? We've seen this, this term, be subject. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 13, be subject to governing authorities. We saw it applied to slaves in chapter 2, verse 17, slaves, be subject to your masters. We saw that wives were to be subject to their husbands in chapter 3, verse 1. And now he's calling for those who are younger or those who are church members to be subject to uh, the elder's authority. See, if the elders are exercising oversight, it stands to reason that members should submit to their oversight as well. Now, it's worth recognizing that elders have a limited authority, right? I don't get to just kind of pop off and say whatever I want about any given subject. In fact, I have a very specific authority that's given to me from the Word of God. And if I speak outside of the Word's authority, my authority's lost, If I give some direction to you that stands outside of the authority of the Word of God, I am on my own. I'm out in the middle of nowhere. That is, our shepherding can't be knowingly contradictory to what the chief shepherd desires for his church. So it's our job, Ryan, Brian, and myself, it's our job to lead our body according to the Scriptures and then to lean on the authority that's given to us in the Word of God. But verse 5 kind of turns a corner, doesn't it? He's laid out these relationships that exist. Here's what an elder does. Here's what a church member does. And then he turns to this discussion of our attitude in verse 5. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. First, there's this call, clothe yourselves with humility. The word clothe yourself is the same idea of like a servant putting on an apron. It's kind of wrapping yourself for the purpose of service. And Peter Paul calls, Peter Paul, Peter calls both groups to this humility, doesn't he? He calls uh, the younger that he's addressed in verse 5, and he calls the elders as well. All of you kind of encapsulates all the people that he's spoken to in this passage clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. And humility is not just for the elder, and humility is not just for the church member. Humility is for the Christian. See, there might be a part of the church attender that wants to kick against the authority of some elder that's out there. There might be a part of some elder that wants to question the submission of a churchgoer. But Peter says that all of us need humility. And notice what he says the product of this is. The reward. God gives grace to humble people. First, he says, God opposes the proud. 
How does God oppose the proud? You ever think about that? How does that work? Because it seems to me like when I look around the world, it's the most arrogant people that are the most successful. Have you ever noticed that? It's the, the, you know, the top 100 CEOs that are jet-setting across the universe here. And they're so arrogant, so bold with their mouth. It's the, the actor of Hollywood that, that speaks something that's just insane. And we see all of this prosperity that comes to wicked, proud, arrogant people. How do we understand that God opposes proud people? Well, if we turn back to Genesis 3, where there's the ultimate kind of discussion of pride with the the actions of Adam and Eve, we see that Adam acts out in pride. See, Adam actually uh, believes the lie from Satan that if he disobeys the word of God, he might become like God. Isn't that proud? See, Adam's actually disobeying what God has told him to do to try and become like God. And, and then God naturally opposes him by giving curses. Adam's promised death and toil in his work. God subjects Adam to a hardship because of his own sinfulness. See, God has been opposing pride from the beginning. All the way back to Genesis 3, he's been opposing the proud and the arrogant such that he's breaking them down. Maybe not in their economic prosperity, but the cracks are starting to show in their character, in their person, in their family life, in their relationships, in the internal hardships that we don't see. See, God opposes proud people, and we can take this promise to the bank. When when we mount up in pride and self-reliance, We should anticipate that God opposes us. See, pride in the pulpit or the pew will be opposed by God. God's not going to tolerate such insolence from his people. Pride's that sin which hides itself in plain sight. It flaunts about in such ordinary ways that we might not even see it. And pride's that part of us that assumes ourselves to be correct and distrusts everyone else. It can be the root of both bragging and, and of also of uh, self-deprecation. It's that part of us that would assume ourselves to be in the place of God. See, God opposes us in that. As, as an expression of His grace, He brings opposition to that, doesn't He? Secondly, God gives grace to the humble. We joke a lot about humility, right? You say things like, I'm the most humble man I know, right? Stupid joke. I've learned a new level of humility this week. My wife took me to play pickleball on Friday. And uh, I played a 95-year-old woman and lost. Humility is natural to me right now. I can honestly say it was the most fun I've ever had while being humiliated. C.S. Lewis says this, though. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking less, uh, excuse me, it's thinking of yourself less. See, if you think you are not conceited, it means that you are very conceited indeed. It's that slippery slope of pride that is so imperceptible to us that we might not even recognize that it's there. And when we brought when we're brought to this idea of humility, we recognize that only God can bring about true humility in us. If we try to chase down humility, we automatically become proud. If you, you know, set yourself, I'm going to become the most humble person this year, and you actually succeed, how do you celebrate it without becoming proud? Oh, wretched man that I am, right? 
See, our God willingly extends grace to those who recognize their need of it. Isn't that the second part of this quotation from Proverbs? God gives grace to the humble. He willingly extends himself to those who recognize their need of saving. See, remember that when Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 5, which is one of his first public addresses, he says that blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek because they will inherit the earth. And Jesus is kind of reorienting our understanding of what, uh, what is valuable in this life. He, he recognizes that all of the world's leadership is going to be turned upside down by his kingdom. There's something about our recognition of need before God which invites God's patience and mercy with us so that he extends grace to sinners who need mercy, who in humility come to God and say, I don't know what the answer is, but I know you have it. See, the question before us is how do we cultivate true humility. If, if the church is meant to function with humble leadership and humble membership, how do you and I as church member or church leader or both, how do we actually cultivate true humility before God? It's a question worth pondering, isn't it? Because it could seem like we're a dog chasing its tail where we're just constantly bound to our sinful humanity and we can't really seem to escape it. See, it's here that we recognize something about our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus was, most, was the most humble man and the most effective leader that the world has ever seen. Think about both of those two things in combination. Jesus was the most humble man and the most effective leader to ever walk the face of the earth. And think about how those principles would fly in our world today. Imagine a CEO that seeks to embrace humility. Will he be effective as a leader? Will the world value what he puts forth? Jesus actually models this for us and speaks on it in Matthew chapter 20. And I want to put it on the screen in front of us so that we might follow along in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. Next slide there. There we go. Jesus called to them excuse me, called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I just want to pause for a second. And in this discussion about what the church is and how the church functions, I want to reorient ourselves to the leadership of Jesus and how he called us to live out our lives. So the first thing we see is that Jesus advocated for a different leadership dynamic. Jesus advocated for a different leadership dynamic. Look at verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. See, the world's way of leading is through self-asserted authority. It manipulates through fear and fortune so as to produce their own desire outcome. Thus, worldly leadership will never be greater than the individual leader's heart. Worldly leadership is necessarily self-limited. See, what happens is the CEO steps into the boardroom and he starts throwing his weight around, right? That's how the world leads. And what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to cower in the presence of such greatness, as it were. 
See, everything hinges upon this individual. And they lord it over those that they lead. And Jesus is even acknowledging it. He's calling us to a different leadership dynamic. And see, Jesus has consistently called us to something better throughout his life. It was in Luke 9 that he said, For he who is least among you is the one who is great. Here he said, uh, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus is modeling a different leadership dynamic. See, Jesus, this is the second point, is that Jesus modeled a self-sacrificing leadership. Verse 25, excuse me, verse 28, he says it with such clarity. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. See, Jesus tells us the purpose of his coming was service. He didn't come to be served. He didn't come to lay down on a cot and be fed bananas and fanned with banana leaves, or fed grapes and fanned with banana leaves. Isn't that... You could feed somebody a banana. Anyway, okay. See, Jesus tells us that his purpose was to come and to serve. Remember what he does in the upper room the night of his own death? He he disrobes himself. He gets nearly naked, and he bows down before each of his disciples, and he wipes the the mud and, and the dust and everything else that had collected on his disciples' feet. This was the Jesus who spent morning after morning, evening after evening, healing and driving out demons to the point of utter exhaustion. See, notably, his ultimate act of service was his substitutionary death. He gave his life as a ransom for many, as he says here in verse 28. Jesus became the ultimate servant. Paul tells us that he humbled himself, even to the point of death. And Jesus' humility isn't just some abstract theological truth. Jesus saves his people by the ultimate expression of humility, the righteous God dying a sinner's death. Leaders, are we ready to serve in such self-sacrifice? Elders, are we ready to lay down our lives to serve those here in Troy, Ohio? You feel called? You feel called to be an elder? Are you ready to come and die? So Jesus models a self-sacrificing leadership, but then the next step is so important. Jesus empowers us to a self-sacrificing leadership. Isn't that what he says bound up there in verse 26? It shall not be so among you. Does Jesus ever call us to something that he doesn't think we can actually handle? Are we supposed to actually put off the leadership of the Gentiles and just try to magically become like this great leader, Jesus. What does he mean here? It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant. How are we empowered to do such a thing as that? Isn't Jesus just laying this heavy burden of the law, just be like me, lead like I do? How are we to fulfill what what he's called us to here? That's why we fast forward to verse 28. He gave his life as a ransom. That by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he stripped away the heart of stone. He replaced it with a heart of flesh. That he's brought renewal and resurrection to his people so that you and I might be able to lay down our lives and serve 
that we might be able to put on patterns of humility because we don't need to self-assert. We don't need to, to claim our rights any longer because the lordship of Jesus Christ has saved us from everything that we hate about ourselves. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, God consistently has a critique of shepherds of the people of Israel. It's particularly within the priesthood. Uh, God is constantly kind of critiquing those people that have handled the priesthood poorly. So we have the story of Nadab and Abihu. In the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 10, they offer strange fire before the Lord, and fire breaks out from the altar and consumes them. They're just gone. No more Nadab and Abihu. It's in 1 Samuel that the sons of Eli were wicked. They were having sexual relations with other women who were involved in the temple. And God puts them to death in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34, God uh, speaks through the prophets and he, he faults the shepherds because the shepherds of Israel, that is the political authorities and the priestly authorities, they were putting all of the people at risk. And so God is highly critical through those prophets of, of these people. He's saying, where are my shepherds? My shepherds are leading the sheep right to the wolves and they're being left open. My people are dying for lack of shepherds. But when God wanted to raise up true shepherds for his people, he sent his son as a sacrificial lamb. He shepherded his people. He shepherded his people by the means of humiliation and self-sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ, so that he might bring renewal and restoration to some and call them to lead his people as under-shepherds. See, Jesus died that elders and members alike could exhibit the humility he displayed at Calvary. And it's by the renewal that we have in Jesus Christ that you and I can live out what Peter's telling us here in 1 Peter 5. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you're growing concerned. As you see churches, as they grow in age, they, they tend to become like, like we become when we get old. They become grumpy and old, right? Churches get grumpy. Have you ever noticed that? We fight over little things. I don't know. Maybe you're concerned with me that uh, sometime down the road, Gospel Community Church will come up against an impasse, a, a seemingly impossible situation that we won't be able to get beyond where uh, members and, and uh, leaders will be at this state of distrust. And I'm recognizing this morning that when we read First Peter 5, it helps grease the wheels of the church. When we put on humility as leaders or when we put on humility as church members, it helps us to relate to one another with graciousness and kindness. See, let's bring humility into the walls of our church. Elders, let's cultivate a personal humility. And let's do so at the foot of the cross. Let's recognize God's grace and mercy to us as individuals that, that we would cultivate a, a gospel-rootedness, a Christ-centeredness that would help us to lead these individuals. 
And if you're here and you're a member of the church, guard your heart against pride by preaching the gospel to yourself time and time again. Remind yourself that you are far off, that God has brought you near through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And I dare say that there won't be an ounce for us to be able to say with pride, with uh, self-assertion, with with arrogance that, that we know better because we were recipients of grace from the first. Isn't that what we need? How do we navigate the troubles that lie ahead? We embrace the cross. We recognize that only by the cross are we changed, and only by the cross will we continue. Amen? I want to make that prayer for us this morning. I want to invite you to pray with me. Lord, we ask now that you would make us a gracious people. Help us with humility to engage one another by giving the benefit of the doubt, by being gracious and kind to one another because you have shown us kindness in Christ. Allow us to be merciful people because you have shown us mercy in Jesus. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.